Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, you're listening to The Bunker. I'm Seth Tebble. Space, the final frontier. No, this isn't about Star Trek, but about how we use some of our most famous spaces. We often like to talk about the UK having the mother of all parliaments and its influence on parliaments worldwide. But how do we measure up against other countries and the way they've built their parliaments? Does a building even matter? And can we even talk with any authority if Westminster keeps being hit with reports that the Parliament is slowly sinking and in need of a full overhaul with Big Ben already leaning at a three-degree angle? Here to help us to shed some light on this is an expert on parliamentary buildings, Dr. Sophia Sarah of the Bartlett School of Architecture at UCL. Sophia, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, why do we build dedicated buildings for parliaments? Why don't we just do what the English did from the Middle Ages until a couple of hundred years ago and uh, make do with meeting in a converted chapel? Uh, this is a really interesting question, and we know that this is how the Mother of Parliament started. So they used to meet in the converted in a converted chapel. But a lot of time has passed since then, and the functions in Parliament buildings have become quite complex. Um, as well as the roles that they play in society have mm. uh, become different. Um, so it used to be um, an environment, let's say, for a medieval aristocratic mm-hmm. group of people meeting and debating and doing politics. Whereas now we are into a completely different political uh, condition. And there are two ways in which parliaments really function. One is the symbolic way, mm-hmm. which has to do with history, has to do with memory, has to do with certain meanings that they represent for the nation. And the other one is the functional, everyday way in which they organize people's activities. And these two ways of functioning are create a quite complex environment with complex requirements. So that's why we really need to build parliament buildings rather than continue a meeting in the chapels. And there's definitely something about the professionalization of politics. Um, you know, Conrad Russell had this wonderful phrase about how in the 17th century parliament was an event, not an institution. You know, it was something you did in your spare time, as you say, as an aristocrat. Whereas now it's a full-time public service with a range of functions. Yes, it is an institution and it's a very complex institution. Uh, And in a way, all buildings are institutions. Uh, They house institutions and uh, institutions are um, important parts of society, how society works. They do a lot of thinking for us and they save us a lot of time. Yes. So this is the positive side of institutions. There are, of course, things that one needs to be careful about institutions regarding how they evolve and how they change over time. They change very little Mm. and it takes a lot of time for that change to take place, but they do change. On the subject of change and how we do it, we we like to do things on the cheap in this country. I'm thinking of how we only seem to build parliaments if we have to. You know, the last two major rebuilds of parliament were caused by the Blitz and by the Great Fire of 1834. And there have been plenty of reports, as I opened with, on how parliament is actually long overdue a major overhaul. 
Yes, the uh, restoration and renewal program, I think you are referring to, mm. which was um, started in 2018 and uh, still we don't know exactly what's going to happen. And they cannot really estimate exactly the cost because only when they take out the final layer of the walls to discover what's behind the walls, they will have a better estimation of the total cost. There was a sponsor body, which was an independent body that was planned to organize the restoration and renewal program. But uh, I think that a year year ago that was dismantled and then the decision passed back to the commons. A great deal of the delay, let's say, has to do with how it's going to happen. So the cheapest and easiest way to do it is to decant. So all the functions of the parliament have to come out. Uh, but uh, another idea is that the commons operate from the Lords, which is what happened during the Blitz when mm -hmm. the House of Commons was bombed. And another idea is that the, they don't move out, they stay. Now, if they go to the House of the Lords, that's going to add 40% to the total cost. The cost is estimated at multi-billions at the moment. <laughs> and if they stay in the commons, that's going to have an increase of 60%. So as you understand, uh, this is at the taxpayer's expense mm. and it is a very, very complex matter. Is it worth looking at a contrast in how even in this country we've done parliaments? Because um, on the one hand, you have something like the Scottish parliament where they said, we're going to do this once in a lifetime, in fact, once in many lifetimes. So we're going to do it properly. It ran hugely over budget, but it is a purpose-built building, offices for everyone, everything you might need. Compare that with, say, City Hall for the uh, GLA, which ended up um, being sold off barely 20 years after it opened. Uh, it was rented and uh, it costed, I think, 11 million mm -hmm. per year. And uh, this is the reason for which uh, the GLA moved out mm -hmm. of the building. So I do think that the approach that the Scottish Parliament took is the right one. Mm. So that do something, do properly and in a way that it lasts. Yes, and it should have the capacity should have the capacity to adjust as well and evolve mm. because yeah. society changes and politics change and the way in which we do things mm. uh, need to be considered uh, how they're housed inside this building. And, and there is a desperate shortage of things like office space in the Westminster Parliamentary Estate. You know, you, um, you either have to be on these outhouses which do have big offices, but they're you know, two, three blocks away, which is a long time in parliamentary terms, or else if you are in parliament, you're literally in a broom cupboard. Yes, uh, <laughs> there is a variety of offices. Uh, they, there are offices, I think, in Port Callis House and there are offices in other parts of the parliamentary state. Everything needs to be within eight minutes distance because yeah. that's the time that uh, MPs have to go to the chamber mm. in the case of a division. But yeah, it is just the tip of the iceberg, the, mm. <laughs> the Houses of Parliament. Uh, it is supported by a whole range of buildings and spaces in the neighbourhood. Mm. And, and how does this British experience contrast with, say, other countries? I am familiar with the Reichstag, which I uh, looked at in the context of a comparison between mm -hmm. the Houses of Parliament in the UK and the Reichstag building uh, in, uh, in Germany. And uh, what's interesting is that that building is just for the chamber and it's for the press that meets mm -hmm. on one of the floors above. And then it has that uh, famous uh, dome at the top with the public can visit and really have a spectacular view over Berlin and has a very symbolic function as well, giving the people the sense that they own the building. Mm. But the offices are in a separate building. 
a lot's been made about the adversarial nature of the British Parliament, uh, you know, the way that seats are opposite one another compared to the more enlightenment idea of seats in a semicircle. Can you tell us more about this? Yes, this is a fundamental difference between the UK Commons Chamber and the shared typology mm. of parliamentary chambers in many countries in Europe. Uh, we did an analysis of 28 European mm-hmm. chambers, the 27 countries of the EU, and included the UK as well, although it exited the EU simply because it was part of the EU and because of its peculiarities. Mm. Um, We also took into account for this analysis uh, previous studies like uh, a study by XML Architects who published an interesting book called Parliament in 2016 Mm -hmm. where they classified over 100 parliamentary chambers all over the world into five main typologies. One is the opposite facing benches, the other is the semicircle. the horseshoe, which is a hybrid yep. between the semicircle and the opposite benches, uh, the classroom and the circle. So looking at these 28 chambers, it's really interesting to trace the influences of the UK to other Commonwealth countries in mm-hmm. Europe like Cyprus and Malta. So mm-hmm. they have the horseshoe shape with clear influences and Ireland as well. Uh, the majority of the parliamentary chambers, though, are semicircular. A lot has been said about the adversarial mm. shape of the chamber. But what we looked in with how our analysis was not so much the shape, but how things feel and seem to MPs Mm -hmm. when they are seated in their seats inside the chamber. This is a completely different spatial dynamic. One looks at form, looks at shape, Mm -hmm. the other looks at fields of vision and how much this field of visions overlap to really uh, reveal the extent to which things are visible to as many MPs as possible in an equal way. And the density in the chamber. So just to cut the long story short, what came out of the study is that the UK is the densest of all. Of course, Mm -hmm. Churchill wanted it this way for certain reasons. But also it gives um, equal views to as many people as possible. Taking this into consideration in relation to the proportional representation, how many MPs are in the government party and how many MPs are in the opposition, uh, this special property of the chamber gives an equal footing to the unequal distribution of power. And it's very much an idea rooted in the French Revolution originally, the Citizens' Assembly, and the idea that from left to right, the modern terms we use now of left to right would literally map people out, although it's been quite useful, as you say, because of the dynamic of sitting there in particularly countries with PR systems you are physically located close to your natural partners. Yes. So instead of, well, we're on the opposition benches, but we don't like any of these people, there's more a sense of we actually quite get on with the people sitting near to us than we don't get on with the people sitting far away. Yes. Uh, Another interesting dimension, I think, in the UK House of Parliament is that uh, when the governing party changes, the MPs change seats. Whereas in other uh, European chambers, people stay in the same position. They don't really Mm. change positions. So we thought that that's really interesting, including how people actually speak. Mm. So in many European chambers, they need to go to the rostrum in order to speak. So they have the chair 
behind them and they face the assembly, whereas in the UK House of Parliament, people speak from their seats. Primarily. But the, the roots of this in the British Parliament are, as, as with so many details, they're very much rooted in uh, historical oddities. I mean, in this case, it was literally you're meeting in a chapel and you put the benches to one side and that's how, how it's continued for centuries. Yes, there is historical continuity. There is histor- a historical path that has really influenced that. And uh, uh, I think that the entire culture of the debate, the parliamentary debate as a theory of knowledge, because mm. it's a theory of knowledge, uh, has developed uh, according to that history. Now, we've talked a bit here about the big set-piece chamber, which is what you tend to think of when you think of the parliament. But as you were saying, a lot of this is a very practical building with a multiplicity of other functions. Can we say a bit more about that? Yes, it is a very complex and functional building that uh, almost uh, it can be considered in terms of the UK House of Parliament as a city. Mm. Almost uh, people that have different roles, staff that work with MPs, clerks. Uh, uh, you have uh, the press mm. that uh, plays a very special role in the in the building. Then you have caterers, you have cleaners. You have it's a very very complex building, and the mm. activities and the rooms that uh, um, accommodate activities range from committee rooms and offices to tea rooms, uh, staff rooms, uh, mm. libraries, uh, dining rooms, and so on. There is really interesting study by Lord Norton. It's an article that he published called Power Behind the Scenes, Mm. where he says that what's going on in the parliament is not just a chamber. And a great deal of socialising in these social spaces is very important in terms of politics. It has to do with uh, political mobilisation, mobilisation of support, Mm. uh, and also the induction into the parliamentary process, because when people become MPs for the first time, Mm. they really don't know how to use the building. No, absolutely. You you need a guide because it's such a baffling world. And My very first graduate job was actually a lowly MPs researcher. And um, one of the reasons why you say people get sucked into the Westminster bubble, and that's totally true and totally understandable, is if you're not paid very much. You know, I was on, I think, £17,000 a year. Um, the subsidised canteens were a godsend. And so actually, there is a reason why you have breakfast, lunch and dinner there, because it's the only cost-effective way to live. But, of course, the flip side is you end up having this idea of a, a separate culture of people who live entirely you know behind those closed doors i wanted to ask about uh, some, some of this other sort of functional side that you mentioned from um, philip norton um it's not all in the parliamentary estate there's a whole lot of stuff that's sort of extra parliamentary there are bars there are clubs there are places where politics happen in westminster but they're off-site but they've got a sort of semi-official function Yes, there are. There are lots of pubs and um, social spaces that are uh, in the vicinity of the Houses of Parliament. I think, having looked at that, there are 172 spaces that have division bells, uh, which are within the eight-minute distance, where MPs socialise, and um, a great deal of the politics takes place in these other spaces. I get the sense that a lot of it is for show, um, as in, I I know, for example, there are some lobbying firms where they like to boast, oh, well, we're terribly well connected, we have a division bell, but it's never used, frankly. Um, but yeah, I mean, on the other hand, um, some of this stuff gets taken over by Parliament. So, for example, there's now a canteen uh, on one of the outhouses, Bellamy's, which is quite well known in Parliament. And Bellamy's used to, in the 19th century, be a totally separate building that was basically taken over. I mean, it's really interesting how stuff that starts out unofficial 
parliaments often say we'll have a bit of that for ourselves. It becomes absorbed gradually into the yeah. parliamentary estate. Yeah, it has grown over the years into a large complex organisation. But, but there's there's other stuff that's a little more intermediate. I mean, I'm thinking one of the things that was rather notorious about Nigel Farage was that uh, he basically spent his days more or less in Brussels in the British-themed pub right opposite the European Parliament in Brussels. Um, and somewhere like that is known as an official sort of site, but it's it's off Parliament. Yes, these are spaces of specific and peculiar solidarities. Mm. And uh, buildings can be considered as buildings of uh, differential solidarities, uh, where people from different places, they live in different places, but they come to this building in order to socialize, in order to perform certain functions, and then they develop this kind of solidarities. I think that's really important because parliaments are meant to represent people, and there are so many subcultures within that. Um, I mean, I used to come across this when writing about the 19th century. you would have party whips that would work all the private members' clubs because they knew that they could rustle up 250 MPs very quickly for a vote if they just went to two or three clubs and they were all dining under one roof. But it was done by party, by culture, by representation, you know, the Irish MPs in one club and so on. Yes, this is the way in which we see how important um, is to take into consideration the social dimension of space mm-hmm. and that space is not about the physical components that make a building or make a room or make a series of rooms, but it is a lot about the sociopolitical and cultural dimension So the way in which spaces are connected Mm. to each other can really give rise to certain ways in which people relate or to different ways in which people relate. So a great deal of the work that I do looks exactly at the interconnections among spaces, the network of spaces and what kind of properties these networks have and what kind of cultures they can sustain, cultures of collaboration or cultures of um, separation in a way. And that's really interesting because there are some spaces that are static, sort of bars that are no-go zones for Tory or Labour MPs, for example, in Parliament. And then there are some corridors where everybody flows along, everybody meets. You know, a huge amount of politicking is done by finding out where does everybody go through a one narrow corridor in Parliament. I mean, the division lobbies are a classic example of that. Yes, the Houses of Parliament is a very interesting spatial layout. And when you look at it without really knowing how, what are the rules of behaviour and what are the spaces that certain people can go or can't go, the view that one has is that it is like an urban system. And if you think that uh, if somebody is free to flow from everywhere to everywhere else, you would actually bump onto many different people. I do know that rules of behaviour exist and also budgets that people carry mm. according to the social category or political category they they belong to that really opens certain doors or doesn't open others. Uh, But nevertheless, I do think it's a very, very dynamic and probabilistic Mm. space where people can meet each other in an open way. I mean, the badges are a double-edged sword because I remember Parliament before 9-11 when no one wore badges. You were all supposed to, but it just didn't happen. And there was a lot more of people huffing around saying, don't you know who I am? But there was also a more, if I can put it this way, a classless side. It didn't matter if you were an MP or a peer or a research assistant or the cleaner. You could talk to somebody quite easily. Whereas now the first question is, are you meant to be in here? This is fascinating. Why do you think that this is so nowadays? Is it uh, because of uh, needs for security? Or yeah, it, it came out of a short-term pressure around the war on terror. Same time period when all those barriers start being erected around Parliament. And that's really symbolic as well, because up until that point, you know, we made a virtue of anyone could wander in, whereas there was much tighter security. You know, you have to be patted down properly in a scanner for 15 minutes before you can get to central lobby. Um, and the byproduct of it is that the space is less open, that it is much more 
uh, controlled. Yeah. Controlled. Uh, this is an interesting issue to take into consideration in relation to the Scottish Parliament building. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the brief of the Scottish Parliament building emphasised a lot the idea of transparency, the idea of openness, accessibility, mm-hmm. that people should be able to really move from space to space. But at the same time, it brought up the need for security. So there's always a tension between the two because a Parliament building is about openness and accessibility, but security issues introduce the opposite need and how they can resolve these two opposite needs is a very, very important. And of course, the Scottish Parliament, which was designed and built in the late 1990s, is very much a prime example of that last gasp of that mindset before security set in in that way. Can we talk a little bit about art in parliaments? Because there's a bit of a tension in in what it has to represent, because sometimes it's representing these abstract constitutional ideals, sometimes it represents traditions, and sometimes it looks at people. I mean, what, what do you think about that? Yes, the art that is on the walls of the House of Parliament is um, celebrating certain battles, celebrates moments in histories and people and personalities and so on. And one can possibly argue that uh, this art does not represent all the people that go into the parliament building today or all members of the public. Uh, Nevertheless, they are still quite important uh, narratives that Mm. uh, have um, played a formation role for the nation. Uh, There are parliaments that use abstract art, like, for example, the Reister, which Mm. I studied. Um, And uh, this is another approach. Um, What was interesting in relation to this building is that uh, when uh, Foster and Partners, the architect extra firm that uh, refurbished the building and remodeled the building, uh, started stripping off the walls. They discovered a lot of graffiti that was uh, put there by the Russian soldiers uh, Mm. uh, when Berlin fell. And uh, they decided to keep some of that because they were obviously Mm. very important testimonies of a particular historical moment uh, in that building. So... um, I think that diversity of different forms of art are important so that, um, again, has to do with evolution, has to do with how things mean for people over time. And it uh, goes to the heart of the question of whose parliament, because it means different things to different people. Exactly. Yes. Um, we touched on security, but parliaments in any kind of democracy have often been synonymous with protest and with dissent. And that's quite a tension for anything being a functional parliament. But on a daily basis, having anything from three people making a a fringe protest all the way through to several thousand people wanting to descend on parliament. That's another tension, like the one that we discussed before about accessibility and Mm. security. It is very important, I think, when people need to protest about particular political issues, uh, cultural and social issues, they need to be able to access the parliament because uh, there's visibility and this is the space where debates are uh, staged and decisions are taken. So how do you really balance uh, the need for security and the need for, for protest is another uh, and it's, a, it's an ongoing contemporary problem because we had certainly a political settlement from about the 1890s onwards right up until only a couple of years ago with the idea that as long as you applied long enough in advance, basically anyone could protest as long as it was peaceful. Um, they had the power to turn you down, but they never would. Uh, we've had this law passed in the last couple of years, which let's not beat around the bush. It was written with Steve Bray in mind with one particular, you know, the Stop Brexit man. And before that, the government tried to out law the um, Brian Hall, the anti-war protester around Afghanistan, um, who was permanently camped outside, but they couldn't do it retrospectively. And it does seem as though the cordon for protesting anywhere near Parliament is moving further and further away. You now can't go any closer than halfway up Whitehall unless it's a mass demonstration. 
it feels very much like the changes that took place inside in the interior, mm-hmm. the way in which you described the, the parliament mm-hmm. building, uh, was it 10 years ago and the way it is now. Unfortunately, the complex issues society is facing really increases, I would say, the distance between parliament buildings and the people, mm-hmm. either for protests or for the visits of the public. But still, I think what I find really very, very important in the UK is that uh, capability, that freedom the public still has to access the central lobby. Mm-hmm. I was in uh, Athens uh, four months ago and I thought, oh, it would be interesting to visit the parliament building. So mm-hmm. I went at the gates and asked and they said, of course you can, but it's only on Sundays when the MPs are not there. So that's a big difference between here where you can go and lobby your MP and Athens where you can visit only when the MPs are not in place, trying to really increase the distance between the public and the MPs. Thank you, Sophia. That's been fascinating. Sophia Sarah is co-editor of Parliament Buildings, the Architecture of Politics in Europe, which will be out in October but is already available for pre-order. And listeners, thank you for joining us. We'll be back soon with another edition. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, remember that you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting a whole host of shows, including The Bunker, Oh God, What Now? and Arthur Snell's Doomsday Watch. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bunker was written and presented by Seth Table. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.